form is nothing new for God's people throughout history. And it's nothing new for us. In fact, it's not just pressure to conform that we're faced with now, it's actually that we're being forced to conform. So I want you to think back to the Bible reading we had a moment ago and, and imagine yourself in this situation. Think of yourself like this. Imagine that you are a young person somewhere in your early teens. I'm going to say somewhere around the vicinity of the age of 15 or 16. You uh, have suddenly, uh, in this case, the, the young people are young men, but all of a sudden you've been completely uprooted out of your home of birth and taken 1,000 kilometres away to a foreign land and a foreign culture. You have been raised, the evidence would suggest that you've been raised in a godly home. That's because of the names that you have. The name that you have actually links you directly to God. God's name is part of your name. But you are suddenly uprooted out of your culture and all that you have known. You are being uprooted out of, we will say, a biblical culture. Now that is not to say that in the days of Daniel that his culture was following God. It certainly wasn't. In fact, the reason why the Jews went into exile was because God had said, you have not obeyed my law. But nevertheless, you were raised in a godly home, but in a culture that has experienced for a long time the benefits of God's wisdom, even though people might not be following it. So imagine that you're 15, 16 years of age, you're uprooted, taken to this foreign nation, foreign culture, and upon arrival, you suddenly realise that you are going to be forced into the service of the king, the emperor who has defeated your nation. You have no choice about it. And the king who reigns at that time is an absolute despot. He has absolute authority. He is an arrogant man. He's a proud man. But what he says goes. And if he wants to cut your head off, he will cut your head or he'll have your head cut off. So you have no say in the matter. You are now forced into his, or ultimately into his service, but you are also enrolled into a program of indoctrination. Imagine this. You're 14, 15, 16 years of age. You're now enrolled into a program of indoctrination that is designed to conform you to the culture, that is designed to make you a thoroughly Babylonian person. And after three years of immersion in that culture... All your rights, all your personal freedoms have been taken away. After three years, you then enter the service of the king. How would you go? How would you go? 14, 15, 16 years of age. Think back to when you were that old. You don't know much at 14, 15 or 16 years of age. You're still developing. In some respects, there are still childlike aspects to your development. You're growing out of childhood, but there's still you're barely out of your childhood. You're now approaching adulthood, but that's a confusing time. How would you go if you were thrown into that culture? So, as we think about that, because that is the scenario of Daniel and his three friends. That's the kind of mix that they experience. So, as we think about that, let's think about, for a few moments, the challenge of culture. Let's think about the way in which culture challenges the faith of God's people. Have a look in your Bibles at verse 4. Here is a description of the young men who were taken into this prospective service of the king. Now note that only four of them are named 
And I think that the reason behind that, reading some background material this week, is the reason we only have the names of four of them is because these are the young men who stood out for God. It is reasonable to assume that the other young men who were taken into this program assimilated into the culture. But these four men stand out because they refused to assimilate. They refused to compromise their beliefs, even though the challenge of the culture was direct. Read verse 4. Here's the kind of young men they were. Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him, ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, these are young men in whom there is no physical defects, but they are also cho- chosen because of their wisdom. And if you look at this, a variety of words mentioned in verse 4. Knowledge, insight, wisdom. When you look at all of these words and you begin to put them together and understand what wisdom is and what intelligence is, there's a theme that runs through all of these words. And and what essentially uh, the summary of these young men is that they were skillful young men. The word skill predominates in all of these words. It means that they weren't just intelligent, they, they didn't just possess knowledge, but they actually understood how to take the knowledge that they had and put it into practice. That requires skill. These young men were men who could look at a situation and they could weigh it up, they could discern, they could take all the facts into account and then be able to discern what is the right path to take or what would be the wrong path. That requires skill. And they were also young men who were able to take that knowledge and actually advise others and lead others to be successful. That requires skill. So these are young men with skill. They're outstanding young men. I'm going to say they're around about the age of 16. What we suspect is that they were certainly in their early teens. So let's just take, not to make it arbitrary, but let's just take a figure of they're around about the age of 16. It gives you kind of an idea of the quality of these young men who are being pressed into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. And possessing all of that skill, we read at the end of verse 4, that they are being ordered to be taught the literature and the wisdom of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. They are being forced to acclimatise to the culture. The reason that they are being taught the literature of the Chaldeans is they want them to become thoroughgoing Babylonians. They want to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. It's a three-year program that we are told elsewhere in the chapter. Now, missionaries will tell you this, that the best way to understand a culture and its language when you become a missionary in a foreign country, when you have to learn the language and when you have to learn the culture, missionaries will tell you that the best way to do it is to immerse yourself in the culture. That way you begin to understand the culture, you begin to understand the language, you immerse yourself in it so that you begin to take it on. That's precisely what's happening here. A three-year program of immersion into Babylonian culture. Their names are changed. Notice that in verse 6. You have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. That is their Jewish name. And each of those Jewish names connects them directly to the one true God who created the world and the universe. But when they get to Babylon, their names are changed. They're given names Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, names that associate them with Babylonian culture and in some cases associate them with Babylonian gods. Why? Because they want to 
indoctrinate them. They want to enculturate them. They want to make them thoroughgoing Babylonians. Now, the interesting thing about the name change is this, that a person who changed your name, it was a signi- a, a signified in that culture that you had absolute authority and control over the person. And that when you changed a person's name, that was signifying your ownership of that person. This is the kind of culture that they now find themselves in. You belong to us, is what the name change signifies. I love the way one author summarised it. The goal of the program was to make these future leaders thoroughly Babylonian in their thoughts and actions. Folks, that's the challenge of culture, isn't it? And that is the challenge that our culture presents to us. Doesn't our culture present to us? They want to make us thoroughgoing proponents of the culture of which we are a part of. Our culture seeks to indoctrinate us. Our culture seeks to make us all the same, to believe the same things, to accept the same things, to say the same things. Some articles written recently about the whole gender dysphoria debate. And without going into all the details of the arguments, there is legitimate concern out there, not just from Christians, but from non-Christians, who are concerned that the gender dysphoria debate, this idea that somehow I don't know if I'm a man or a woman or I'm confused about it, is not driven by science, it's driven by ideology. If you read through the articles carefully, they appeared in The Australian, there is overwhelming evidence to say this is not being driven by science, it's being driven by ideology. Why? Because the culture wants us to accept this as fact, or what they say is fact. You look at some examples that took place in our community in Australia over this past week. Remember Israel Folau. He popped up again in the news this week because the St George Rugby League Club, who I mentioned is Pastor Craig's Rugby League Club, and they were thinking, we would like to sign Israel and get him to come back to the NRL and play rugby league again. A furor erupted, a media storm erupted, social media, the whole bit, it's about why you can't have Israel Folau come and play. And part of the story was that if Israel was to come and play for St George, that he'd have to keep his opinions to himself. Now, putting aside whether you agree with Israel Folau or not, why should his voice be stifled in our community, but every other voice is acceptable? Do you understand what I'm saying? Why is it that our community can dictate? Why is it wrong for a club to even consider that they might have this guy play for them? You see, that's the society that we live in, folks. It's pressuring us to conform. And the way it's largely done these days is driven by the media, driven by ideology, and driven by social media. Or take the Margaret Court debate. Now, when it was announced that Margaret Court's order was going to be upgraded a couple of weeks ago by the Australia Day Council, the furor and the storm that erupted The leader of the opposition, Anthony Albanese, comes out and says, or uh, Daniel Andrews was quite scathing in his comments on Margaret Court, but the leader, the one that caught my eye was was Anthony Albanese, who came out and said, this upgrade has nothing to do at all with tennis. Well, he didn't read the reason why it was given. The Australia Day Council came out and said it has everything to do with tennis, and we want to distinguish, whilst we, that's the council, don't agree with her opinions, we want to actually recognise her contribution to tennis. Now, why is that a problem in our community? Why is that a problem? Why does our culture erupt every time these things happen? I'll tell you why. Because they want us to conform to their ideology, to their belief. This is the challenge of culture. It is what we face in 
this world we live in as God's people. The voice that says in our community, we are inclusive and we will include every voice but the Christian voice. Make no mistake, our culture is at work to try and completely eliminate the Christian voice. The evidence is overwhelming. So the question is, if that is the challenge of culture, then what am I, I'm asking this question of myself, what am I going to do about it? You might like to ask it in the plural, what are we going to do about it? You see, how do we as God's people, and I've been calling you to become agents of redemption, how do we as God's people become agents of redemption and speak into a culture that is driven and shaped largely by social media? Well, the Apostle Paul has some advice. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, it's the same charge he gave to the Romans, he gives it to us today. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould, is another way of translating it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that's great advice, but the follow-up question is, how do we do that? How do we live according to Romans 12, 1 and 2? Well, I suggest that we can learn a lot from Daniel and his friends. So we've talked about the challenge of culture. Let's talk about now the challenge to culture. And what I want to get across here is, how do we, as God's people, present a challenge to the culture of which we are a part? Let's have a look at verses 8 to 16 of Daniel. So Daniel and his friends come to a point. Now, a couple of things. They've been enrolled in a program of immersion and indoctrination. Their names have been changed to reflect Babylonian customs and culture. To this point, Daniel and his friends have not objected, but they now come to a point where they have to raise an objection, and it concerns the eating of food. They have come to this point. This is the moment where they say, we cannot accept this. They haven't rebelled against the literature program. They haven't rebelled against the name change. But it comes to the issue of food, and in verse 8 we read this, Daniel made up his mind or set his heart upon that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Or another way of translating it is pollute himself with the king's food. Now, there's all sorts of conjecture about what the defilement was. There's there's a few reasons, and it's probably like with any of these things, a mixture of things. It certainly would have some relationship to Jewish food laws, that the food that they were being presented with was unclean, it didn't conform to Jewish food laws. But there's also a suggestion that this food and wine was, because wine itself was not banned from being drunk by the Israelites, but the concept is that the food and the wine had been sacrificed to idols and therefore to eat and drink that food from a Jewish perspective, a devout Jew's perspective, would be to say that the deity that it was offered to was real when they believed in the only one true God. There's another suggestion as well. That because it was food from the king's table, you see, table fellowship in those Middle Eastern cultures is important. And when you enter into table fellowship, you enter into a covenant of loyalty. And so to share the king's food was a great honour, food from his table. And it also implied total allegiance and loyalty to the king. 
And so there's a suggestion, and I think that it has a lot of weight, that Daniel and his friends are thinking, hang on a minute, we, we can accept learning the culture of the Babylonians, we can accept the name change, but we cannot swear total undivided allegiance to the king because our total undivided allegiance is to God. So it's probably a mix of those reasons, but at that point they draw the line. But I want you to notice the way they do it. What I find interesting is that when Daniel draws the line, he doesn't demand a petition. He doesn't go around all the other young men in the program and say, let's sign a petition and send it to the king to say, we're not happy about this fact that we've got to eat his food and drink his wine. They don't mount a rebellion. They don't say, let's storm the palace building and take control for ourselves. They don't demand a hunger strike. I find it interesting that they don't flee to Facebook or Twitter and talk about the king is unjust, he's a despot, he's fanatical, down with the king. No, what Daniel does is he goes to the chief official and he asks for permission. Isn't that interesting? He asks for permission. The king says, do you realise what this is going to do? This will cost me my head. And believe it, folks, in that culture, if these young men appeared before the king and the king thought there was something wrong, the chief official is going to have his head taken off because he's responsible for the program. So the request is denied by the chief official, but Daniel then goes to the more immediate official who was over them and he says very wisely, he then doesn't turn to Twitter again and talk about, oh, the request has been denied, well, I'm out of here. No, he doesn't do that. He goes to another official and he says, look, can I propose a test? Can I suggest that for 10 days we just eat vegetables? And at the end of the 10 days, you tell us who looks the best. And you make the decision. Doesn't force the issue, just proposes a test and says, let's have a look at how things are at the end of 10 days. And we all know how that turns out. We know the result. So here's my next observation about culture and about our role as Christians when it comes to challenging the culture. My observation is this. When I decide to challenge the culture around me, I must do so with wisdom. Do you see that in this text? When I decide to challenge the culture around me, I must do so with wisdom. This young man, these young men are in their early to mid-teens. And there is incredible wisdom here. You have to see this in the light, in the context of what the the passage is saying, that God gave them this gift. The scripture is very clear. If you read there uh, throughout the scripture, that God gave them this wisdom. It is a gift of God. So let me put into the context of my own life. Over the years, and I, over the years, have tackled a number of issues as a pastor and as a Christian in different churches, written letters, all that kind of stuff, being involved in all sorts of things, as many of you have been. Here's what I've learned. What are some wise ways to address our culture? I've learned this, that it's best to use grace, not threats, when it comes to challenging the culture. Grace, not threats. Let me give you two examples. Many years ago, Ray Martin, remember when he used to do the Today Show? He had a program on, uh, or a lady on, who claimed to be... uh, 
a medium and talk to the spirit world. I got a phone call from a pastor friend who was very concerned about that. I was in Cairns. I hadn't seen the program. He had seen the program and he said, we're getting a petition up to say if, uh, you, if Ray Martin doesn't do whatever, I can't remember what it was we were asking him to do, then we're going to uh, ban buying all the products that are being advertised on the Today Show. Now, I hadn't seen the program, right? But I wanted to support my pastor friend, so I wrote a letter. I actually said in the letter that I haven't seen the program, but I understand this is what happened and this is what we're going to do. Funnily enough, about three years ago, I came across the letter, the response from Ray Martin. I got a letter back from Ray Martin. Came across it in some old files and paperwork that I was going through about three years ago. And I just winced because he'd written his standard reply to all of this stuff, but then he'd written the personal <laughs> reply to me. You didn't even watch the program. Everybody who was watching the program knows the woman was a charlatan. Do you always go off so half-cocked? Big exclamation mark, signed Ray. I remember back, I remembered back when I got the letter when I was probably about 30, and at the time I thought, well, that's rude. Looking at it when I was in my 50s, I thought he was spot on. What an unwise, stupid, foolish way I attacked and addressed that problem. And did I even need to address that problem? So fast forward to just a few years ago when Kevin Rudd, you might remember, uh, became Prime Minister again just on the eve of the election and he announced that he had changed his position on the same-sex marriage debate. He had moved from uh, being against it to now supporting it and there was furor and uproar and all this kind of stuff. I wrote a letter to the West to express my viewpoint on the issue of marriage. I felt I needed to do that. But in the letter, I just acknowledged, because everybody was having a piece of Kevin Rudd. Now, it really doesn't matter to me whether you like Kevin Rudd or don't like Kevin Rudd or whether you support him or don't support Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd has the right to change his opinion, doesn't he? Of course he does. And I acknowledged that in the letter. And then I just put forward and said uh, my point of view, and I talked in terms of I respect people's viewpoint on having a different view about me on marriage, but this is my viewpoint and this is why. No attacking, nothing like that. Now, I'm only telling you this story because it just reflects a little bit of growth on my part, but the interesting thing was that someone from the ABC had picked it up and a colleague who had worked at the ABC, who I also knew, uh, shared this with Sunshine. And the person at the ABC had put up a little thing about, congratulations to Pastor Rob Furlong. I don't agree with his viewpoint, but thanks for doing it with grace and integrity. Folks, I was pretty chuffed about that. It's a good news story, but the point is, there is a way of challenging our culture with our beliefs and getting across without having to look like we're trying to rip into people and tear them to shreds. So that's the first thing I've learned. Use grace, not threats. And this has not been an overnight journey for me. Here's the second thing to do when we uh, are looking at this. Or, or Just one more comment, actually, on using grace, not threats. So this is why... Look, I am pro-life, right? I don't think it's helpful when we go around calling abortionists or people who have had an abortion murderers. Do I think, do I think that abortion is murder? Yes, I do. But am I going to call people who are involved in that murderers? No, because you know what you need to do? You need to listen to the stories of some of the women who have had an abortion and the damage and the hurt that it causes. And when we uh, s uh, sign off and give our pronouncements, we need to do it with grace and integrity and with love and with care for other people. We don't earn a lot of points when we constantly tell people you're going to burn in hell for, sin, for your sin. The fact of the matter is that everybody who is outside of God and relationship with God is going to hell, regardless of what your sin is. 
Here's the second thing. Choose which hill you are prepared to die on when you challenge the culture. I have a friend who likes to quote, I don't have to attend every argument I'm invited to. It's true. I've had to learn this lesson over the years. Daniel does not attend every argument he's invited to. He could have argued over the name change. He could have argued over the culture indoctrination, but he doesn't. But he says, this is the hill I'm going to die on about God's food and there's good reasons for it. Folks, I found this, that if you try and fight every single battle and every slight deviation from the Christian belief and Christian faith, you're going to be exhausted. And you know what will happen? You will have people will cheer you on. You'll have a great audience. I say, yeah, go for it, go for it, go for it. But you know what happens? You get exhausted and you don't get much help or support. You just get lots of cheering, but not much action. Coming out of burnout and through a period where I felt I was taking on God's fight in a number of areas, I began to realise this. And I was greatly blessed by the, that old song, this is showing my age, David Meese, who wrote a song called For the Glory of God. And he talks about his own life and he said, once I would ride off to war. And he said, but I discovered that most of the battles were mine and now so is most of the pain. Choose which hill you are prepared to die on carefully. That's why tomorrow night, tomorrow night, this business about anti-conversion therapy, that's a hill I'm prepared to die on, okay? That's a hill I'm prepared to die on. That's why tomorrow night's meeting is so important. That's why I encourage you to attend if at all possible. So let's talk about the character of Daniel and his friends for a moment. And this is important because of what God did through them. And we're just actually going to just briefly touch through this because this sets us up for the rest of the series. What we discover about Daniel, and I've called the message this Daniel, and the reason is because four times in the book of Daniel, he's referred to as this Daniel. And a couple of times it's not very complimentary. This Daniel is a guy who prays, or this Daniel is a guy who does all this stuff. But on other occasions, this Daniel is a man who stands out. And what we discover in the book of Daniel is he's honoured by men. Look at verses 17 to 20. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom, Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king has specified, they're interviewed. And through the interview process, what does the king discover? They're ten times better than anyone else he's got in the kingdom. And why? Well, you see, it's important to note what it says here that God gave them. He didn't just give them the ability of knowledge and intelligence, but he actually gave them the ability to discern right and wrong. That's what the verse is saying. In other words, these guys are immersed into the culture of Babylon, but God gives them the ability to determine what is right and wrong in that culture. That's a gift of God. It's also an interesting little word about Christian education, because Christian education or church, whatever it is where we are preaching the Bible and encouraging people to get into God's word, whether it be in Christian schools or through our church or Sunday school or whatever, folks, it's more important to teach people how to think rather than what to think. Don't you agree? It's important that people know how to think, how to take the Bible and apply it, how to determine what is right and what is wrong, rather than just being told what to think all the time. God gives them this gift and this ability. And the king discovers that these men far surpass anyone else that he has in his court. One writer said this, that the majority of wise men in ancient courts were more cunning than wise. It was more about keeping their jobs and ensuring their heads weren't cut off than anything else. And so these men are honoured and they are taken into the king's service. But this is what we also discover about Daniel. He's commended by God. 
Daniel chapter 10 verse 11, we are not going to read this passage but this is where Daniel has been engaged in prayer, he has had a vision, he doesn't understand the vision, he petitions God and finally an angel turns up and when he greets Daniel, he says this, Daniel man of high esteem, this is how God thought of Daniel, the word means Daniel man of delight, a man who is special, the one who is dear to God. That's how God felt about Daniel. Why? Well, I think it's because back here, as a young teenager, in Daniel 1 verse 8, it says, Daniel made up his mind, set his heart to follow God. He was completely God's man. He was a man of conviction, a man of integrity, a man of courage. And Daniel is also a man with a long-range view. I encourage you to read Daniel chapter 2 when you go home. Read through the whole book, but read Daniel chapter 2 in preparation. Now, we'll come to Daniel 2 in a couple of weeks, but you will see there that in Daniel chapter 2, when he interprets the vision, or not only interprets, but tells the king what the dream was he had, and then interprets it, you will discover that in that interpretation of the dream, God reveals to Daniel the course of history for the next 450-odd years of what's going to take place. In fact, as you get further into the book of Daniel, God reveals to Daniel what is coming into the future, into the end times, what God's plan is for the Jewish nation, what God's plan is for the Gentiles. This comes out through the book of Daniel. What is it telling us? That Daniel is a man with a long-range view of life. We're coming to this in a couple of weeks. Pastor Craig will continue our series next week. He's going to actually, What we're going to do, because we're focusing on, on prayer in this, is intersperse it with prayer topics from time to time. And the first topic, which Pastor Craig will take us through next week, is the topic of does prayer work? And this will be interrelated into the series. But in a couple of weeks, we come back to this vision. But you will see that Daniel has a long-range view of life. And that enables him to live confidently. It enables him to experience freedom along with his friends. And it tells us here, look at verse 21, at the end of the chapter... Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, Daniel is taken into exile in 605 BC. King Cyrus becomes king in 539 BC, 66 years later. So Daniel continues in service with courage, integrity and honour to God for 66 plus years, well into his 80s. Why? Because he has a long-range view of life. Because he is a man who is God's man. He takes the long-range view. So how do we conclude? The series, as I said, is called Living Confidently. Daniel and his friends live confidently. They're confident in God. And because of that, they experience freedom. Freedom from the fear of man. Freedom from intimidation. Fear of not compromising their faith, whether it be personally or publicly. And there are two reasons, and these really the overarching themes that come through the book of Daniel. The first is they know that God's kingdom is coming. Folks, that enables us to live confidently. This situation we find ourselves right now, bushfires raging, COVID-19 keeps coming and going, and we keep going on this endless roundabout. Do you know the overwhelming truth is God's kingdom is coming. None of it's caught God by surprise. God is in control. And Daniel and his friends take a long-range view of life. And we can do the same. By taking the long-range view of life that enables us to live now confidently and experience freedom. So I'm going to close with just a very brief commitment that I want to give you. I do this this morning 
First and foremost, as a Christian. I do it as a husband, a father and a grandfather. And finally, I do it as a pastor. That's third on the list. But in the light of the above this morning, and in light of where God's got me at at the moment, I make this commitment to you to grow in prayer, to live a holy life. Not a life of legalism, but a holy life. That's my commitment. I commit to you, first and foremost to God, but then to you, to live by my convictions. And I commit to seeking God's favour. It's not lost on me that it says that God gave Daniel and his friends favour in the sights of those who, or the sight of those who were overseeing them. But I also commit to you today to challenge the culture of which we are a part, to speak into the culture, but to do it with wisdom and grace. I love that scene in Braveheart when they're going to fight their first battle against the English and they say to him, so what are you going to do? He says, I'm off to pick a fight. I'm not off to pick a fight. I love that scene, but I'm not off to pick a fight. But I commit to you today to not assimilate to our culture, to not retreat from our culture, not to become anti-everything. What I commit to you today is to seek to transform the culture of which we are a part. And as I do that today, I earnestly seek your prayers, I seek the favour of God and his grace, because my decision is I've set my heart on wanting to glorify God. Will you come with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Daniel. Thank you for his friends. Thank you for the witness and the testimony that they have given us. Thank you for the wisdom and the grace and the integrity and the courage of these men. And Lord, thank you for this book that's so it's spoken powerfully throughout the centuries, but it so powerfully speaks into our culture today. Father, I pray for us this morning that we will commit to being agents of redemption in our culture, that we will not assimilate with our culture, that we will not retreat from our culture, but that we will seek by your grace and your wisdom and your love to transform our culture. Lord, we are in difficult times, but you are sovereign, your kingdom reigns and it will reign over this whole world in power and in majesty and glory. Therefore, we can live with a long-range view of life with confidence and freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.